Jesus had a central message, and it was this, the kingdom of God is at hand. Everything he said and did after that was to point to that reality. God creates everything good. We introduce sin, the fall. But Jesus comes in and redeems and starts the restoration project that God's rule, that's what the kingdom of God is, God's rule would take over our world. Jesus liked to talk about the kingdom in parables because it's really built on principles far more than laws. Uh, He talks about this kingdom that's imperceptible but advancing. He uses the image of the mustard uh, tree. Smallest seed, but overnight becomes this huge tree. He talks about yeast in the dough. You don't see it, but one day, all of a sudden, your dough has expanded. The kingdom has moved. And he liked to talk about the value of the kingdom. Uh, He has the parable of the great pearl. There was a merchant who found this incredible pearl and went and sold everything that he had so that he could buy that one pearl. Or the man who saw a treasure that was buried in a field went and sold everything he had so that he could have that field because he wanted that treasure. Jesus was pointing to the ultimate worth of the kingdom of God compared to everything else. And as a result, he had this one direct statement. He had some other direct statements, but this is the one that stands out in our minds. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all of these other things will be added to you. We're in the third week in our series, Generous God. And we're flowing from this notion that our God is incredibly generous. If you begin in the Hebrew Scriptures, you hear phrases like His uh, loving kindness, His has said, His goodness, His faithfulness, He never changes. And the word that comes up in the New Testament is His grace. It's the bounty of God that gets poured out in us. We've been mentioning over and over, it's grace given at the cross and grace promised at the second coming of Jesus. And in between is all grace. But our premise has been, children of God will model that God. He's the Father, so we will resemble Him. Sons and daughters that look like the Father. Would you agree with me on that one? Those of you who are parents understand this. When one of my kids does something exceptional, my shoulders go back and I think, ah, that's one of my kids. When they screw up, I think, what are Ingrid's kids doing? <laughs> Loudest laughter is guilt. We've all done it. But it's that way. God is generous, so it's natural that we would be generous. It would be one of the characteristics that would mark us as the people of God. People should look at us and say, wow, those are generous people. Wow, those are grace-saturated people. Now, that generosity comes in all areas of life, our time, our talent, and our treasure, but it should especially come in our finances, And so we've been talking about being generous living people, which would make us generous giving. Now, if you're just popping in in the middle of this series, you may hear today's message wrong. I would encourage you to go back and listen on the website to weeks one and two, because we're setting some foundational blocks so that this isn't about law, this is about grace. The first motivation to giving is worship. We're giving to God. We're not giving necessarily horizontally. We're going to see there's horizontal impact, but we give generously first to God as worship. 
We saw last week that it's our obedience in the first fruits principle that in that moment we're declaring absolute trust in him. So you see the two big blocks that we put up? Now Jesus very directly is going to tell us that giving will liberate us. It will keep us from getting to a place of idolatry and replacing him as God in our life because we only want one master in our life. So let's go to the text. Take your Bible out. I'm going to highlight a few verses. You can follow along. Matthew chapter 6. In the context, for those of you who are new at studying the Scripture, this is in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Matthew has collected all of Jesus' teachings in this, not all of them, but a major portion of them in this spot. We could call this the constitution of the kingdom of God. At the beginning are the Beatitudes. We could call that the Bill of Rights. Or if you're really insightful, the Bill of No Rights. Because that's what happens when you come into the kingdom. Everything gets turned upside down. And Jesus wants our world to be aligned to the world of the Father. And so he has some things for us. He mentions three things in this text. Heart, eyes, and I'm going to suggest knees. You could put hands in there as well, but you'll see where it's going. First, heart, beginning in verses 19 to 21. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if you can think with me for a moment that Jesus is showing two piles of treasures in our life. Over here are earthly treasures. Okay? There's multiple earthly treasures. They're good things. Uh, as long as they don't become ultimate things, they're really good things to have in life. Money, cars, food, wine, vacations, education, all of those concrete things that are part of people who've been blessed in a significant way. There are what we would call non-concrete aspects or maybe social. We call this fame, success, reputation, ambition, uh, a model family. They're, they're all could be good things, but they can get off. Uh, in reading this week, John Calvin says this about ambition. If honor is rooted as his highest good, then ambition must take complete charge of a man. Just hear that one more time. If honor is rooted as his highest good, then ambition must take complete charge of a man. You see, there are multiple earthly things that are good that can cause us to get off track if we make them ultimate. On the other side, Jesus says there are heavenly treasures. Now, this is a little bit harder to describe. Have you ever really stopped to think about what heavenly treasures are? It's difficult. We, we often take the things of this earth, which are earthly treasures, and we multiply them over and make them bigger. Like, it's a bigger house in heaven. Um, it's better neighbors in heaven. Um, one of my dreams of heaven is that you golf, and so you get over the ball, and you get set, and you hit a beautiful shot. It's right down in the middle of the fairway. You eat from a banquet table. You don't walk. You just, you're all of a sudden at the next shot. <laughs> and boom, you nail it, four iron drifting right in. Right there, you're all set for your birdie putt. You have a bite to eat, and you're transported. See, that's what we do in our mind. 
heaven's at a different plane. We can't even get there. Because heaven is not about the where, and it's not about the what, it's about who. And I don't know if that's better grammatically to say about the whom. I'm not sure how you do that grammatically. God is both subject and object of heaven, so he's the who and the whom of the whole thing that's happening. But the delight, the treasure that God gives us is himself. Now the question is, where are the treasures in our life? Where do we put our greatest stock? Is it in God or is it in these things? Now, I, I don't want you to raise your hand. Just do it in your mind. How many of you have woken up at 3 in the morning to worry about this treasure? How many of you have woken up at 3 in the morning to worry about this treasure? It suggests to me which treasure is bigger in my life. Now, Jesus is a good uh, economist because he says your return on investment is really bad in this one. He uses images like moths and rust and thieves. And he said, as good as these things are to have, there's a diminishing return on them. In the end, they're not going to amount to much. Um, Interesting things happen at bathrooms at Stanwich Church. So I was in there a couple months ago, and one of the members of Stanwich held this $20 bill up and said, oh, this is crazy. Looks like the moths have been eating through my $20 bill. And I looked at him and I said, can I buy that off of you? He said, why? And I said, I'm preaching on moths in a couple months. <laughs> and this is the perfect example. Listen, how much confidence do we put in this? How many times have we said, if I just had a bit more? See, there's nothing wrong with this pile, but it gets out of balance. We, if we overinvest in this area and not in this area, we have a bad portfolio. And here's what Jesus says. Where your heart is, that's where you're going to find your treasure. Heart. Then he goes on to the eyes, verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Uh, I don't know about you, when I read this passage, it seems odd that this happens here. There's two treasures, and he's going to talk about two masters, and then he throws these eyes in the middle. I think Jesus is talking about desires here. What fuels our heart are the things that we desire. They're the things that occupy our thought life. They're the things that are our aspirations and longings. They're the objects of our affection. It's the things that make us anxious. I come back to the illustration. How often this makes me anxious why isn't this making me more anxious? The eyes are feeding the heart. You see, Jesus loves us so much that he speaks directly to us. Don't hear this message through Chuck. I'm just repeating what Jesus says. 
And out of his grace, he pours this reality into us. Listen to what John says in his letter about desires. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Now, obviously, God so loved the world, so it's speaking of people. He's talking about the systems and the things that we put our false affections in. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, now listen to this list, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. You see, Jesus is warning us. It all begins with the heart, but we're fueling the heart with our eyes and our desires. So, heart, eyes, and what I'm terming knees. Verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, or as it says in the text, mammon. Uh, Jesus uses a very strong word here for serve. He uses the word doulos, which is you will be a slave. See, the truth of the matter is you're going to be a slave to something in life. You cannot be a slave to two things because you're going to end up hating both of your taskmasters. Uh, we have a great proverb in Bambada language in Mali. It goes like this. If a man walking down the road comes to a fork road, tries to take both paths, he will split his pants. <laughs> that should have been in the Bible. That's a really good one. Jesus says you can't have two masters. Now, it's interesting the two that he chooses because this is an age-old problem. He says you can have God or money, literally mammos. It's a Semitic loan word. Jesus is giving power to this to suggest that money is not simply neutral. It is one of the major gods that will fight for our loyalty with the true God. See, I believe there are three gods in America that are fighting for our loyalty today. The first is successism. We define total identity by what other people think of us and our success quotient in life. Secondly is a misused sexuality that is rampant and out of control right now, so there are no more sen there's no more sense of this being a gift from God. It is being totally destroyed. And the third is money. Now, interestingly enough, that's not any different than it's been in any society. This is exactly the world that Jesus was speaking into. And he gives this warning. It's so easy for money to become a stronghold, to rob you of your affections for God. Uh, Allison Davies, writing of this passage, says, Mammon, once it has its hooks in the human flesh, will drag it where it wills, all the time whispering into the ear dreams of self-aggrandizement, the marching orders of God and mammon are entirely different directions. And so Jesus warns us because he loves us, because he knows having two masters is going to lead us to a life of anxiety. In the context, the next passage is about anxiety. I thought it was interesting that uh, Pastor Nathan, or our Pastor, uh, or Ruth Director Lance, whoever he was up here, Mr. Cuban Baseball, talked about stress in our life. Anxiety is rooted on this pile, not on this pile. It's all here. 
it means that mamos, mammon, money, has somehow risen to an improper place in our life. Now, it has nothing to do with how much you have. Nothing to do with how much you have. Pastor Nathan said it last week. It was, this was a great line. I thought about it all week long. It's your relationship to your money. So you may be the person who's diligent, squirreling it away so that you'll have a lot for the future. You may be the person who squanders it. You, you spend it like it's gas, out of control. Or you may be the person who doesn't have, who's longing to have it and spend all of your affections. All of those are idolatry. They're false relationships with money. And they have a way of turning our worship away from the true God to the false pile. Heart, eyes, and knees. Because we will bow to something in life. Oh, that we would bow to the living God. So what's my so what this morning? I have two. The first one is this. You are what you love, and you will become what you worship. You are what you love, and you will become what you worship. You see, what I love about Jesus' teaching is He does not remove desire, He redirects it. In fact, Jesus elevates desire and says, refocus your desire in the things that ultimately matter. Jesus is not an aesthetic guru, he's a flamboyant king, and he represents a kingdom that is flamboyant in its generosity. Out of that, much like what Wesley says, earn as much as you can, save as much as you can, so you can give as much away as you can. But have your desires rooted in the right place and have your anxieties quelled by putting your trust and your worship in the living God. This is about liberation. This is Jesus coming in with a huge sword, and he's coming against the chain that's in our life, and he's saying, I break it, and I was going to say, in Jesus' name. He is Jesus, so he's doing it. <laughs> because God wants you to walk free. So what's my now what? Take a look at the piles of treasure in your life. Which one has your heart? Please allow the Holy Spirit in. Please. This is really important. This is ultimate stuff we're talking about today. Scripture says one day every knee is going to bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Far better to bow today. Don't wait for one day and experience the fullness of God. I'll just be fair to you. Jeremiah says this, the heart is exceptionally deceitful. Who can know it or understand it? Invite some of your brothers and sisters in Christ into your life. Let them look at your portfolio and allow the Holy Spirit to do a fresh work in your life. See if it doesn't change some realities about the anxiety level of your life. My second so what is this. 
Money has a spiritual force and stronghold about it. Jesus does not secularize money. He makes it very spiritual. And so it's of utmost importance that we talk about it at church. Utmost importance. What we're doing today is far more important than what you will do with your portfolio manager tomorrow. Because we're talking about two different piles here. Now I'm going to come back to this because I want you to see this. This is grace given and grace promised. There's nothing wrong with this pile. And I bless this pile. Where it's out of balance is when this pile becomes so much bigger than this pile over here. came across a lot of practical wisdom as I was studying on this topic this week. Someone said, money is a good servant, but a bad master. Isn't that great? For people that have money and wealth, that's a liberating thing. It's a good servant, but it's a bad master. Rockefeller was asked, how much is enough? How did he respond? Just a little bit more. G.K. Chesterton to this said, there are two ways to have enough money, acquire more or desire less. See, the bottom line of this is contentment, of enjoying but not worshiping the pile that God has given us. And someone has said, you only get to keep that which you give away. Jim Elliott, missionary to the Aka Indians who gave his ultimate, he was... Uh, martyred, and 90% of the Aukas came to Christ through that witness of being martyred, said this. He wrote it in his journal before he left. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Give up what he cannot keep. To gain what he cannot lose. So give it away. Be a good steward in giving it away, but give it away. I talked to someone this week, and they said they can't wait to get their bonus. It's the first big bonus they've had in a number of years because they can't wait to give their tithe to the church. No, this will be the time to scroll it away because you've had a bad number of bad years. I talked to someone this week who has been graduating their tithe, and they've gone from 10%, adding a percent every year. They're now at 18%. They want to get to a point at some point in their life that they live off of 10% and give away 90%. How big is this pile becoming? You see, and it's not about law. Come with me on this one. This is so important. Grace given, it was accomplished on the cross and in the resurrection. Grace promised, it's secure for us in the future. But both of those give us the power and the liberty to have grace lived out. And we get to be free. We don't have to wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning anxious. One of the great redemption stories of modern history is Les Miserables. I've probably seen it 30 times. The first 10 times in French, understanding only the 8th and 9th and 10th time. But I love to go to it because it's such a perfect picture of redemption. Jean Valjean, 
the thief steals the bishop's cutlery and his silver. He's caught by the police, and the police officer brings him to the bishop and says, I think we've caught the man who stole your silver. And the bishop said, oh, no, he didn't steal it. I gave it to him so that he could take it away. The police officer was surprised. And when he left, Jean Valjean looked at the bishop and he said, you know I'm guilty, why did you do that? And uh, the bishop said, life is for giving. There's a double entendu in that. Life is for giving. Let's stand for our communion hymn.